So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15 says this. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women to teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and the sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing assuming they continue to live in faith, holiness, faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Good morning, church. (laughs) Welcome to one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. When we teach through a book in the Bible, you can't hide from these sort of passages, so you have to hit them head on. And this is one of the most debated and controversial passages. I think verse 12, every single word is debated um, in that verse. The challenge with reading a letter like 1 Timothy is that it's difficult to always know the context of the letter. So you take a letter like this that he's writing to this church in Ephesus, and we have any of you tried to read someone else's mail? You're trying to understand why is he saying this? Sometimes you have to try and understand the context and read between the lines to get an understanding of what this is all about. We know that Paul is writing to Timothy and he's calling him to challenge these false teachers that that have come and infiltrated this church. And even at the end of chapter one, verse 20, Hermanus and Alexander are two people that he kicks out of the church because of their blaspheming, because of their false doctrine that they have in the church. And whenever we look at a passage like this, it's always important to look at what is descriptive of the situation and the circumstance and what is prescriptive. What is it that applies to us today and what was descriptive in that time, in that culture, and in that situation? So for example, Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he says, I want you all to greet one another with a holy kiss. So maybe it's because of my fever blister on my face this morning, but no one came and greeted me with a holy kiss this morning. (laughs) Was that a a word describing a cultural thing that it didn't matter whether you were a slave or a master, Greek or Jew, it was a greeting that you gave to one another to make sure that we all won. It was a cultural thing. Or was it prescriptive in how we as the body of Christ are supposed to greet each other every time we gather? Descriptive or prescriptive? Do you think this word of God is applicable that we need to apply it to our church service? COVID changed that whole situation, right? (laughs) So we, when we do hermeneutics, we look at the then and then, and we try to explain it here and now. So whenever we talk about women in ministry, there are two camps, and on each side of the the line, there is fears, there are worries, there is a certain theological stance this side, and 
depending on what group you sit in this morning, you may have people sitting on both sides of the line, but it's really divided up into two broad camps. The complementarian side and the egalitarian side, or the mutuality side. So the complementarianism is that men and women are equal in personhood, but have different roles in marriage, family life, the church, and elsewhere. So it's complementarity with hierarchy. So God has made male and female equal, but God has given certain roles to the man that the woman cannot perform and certain roles to the woman. Um, and you, uh, obviously on this side, there are different degrees of, of this, this stance. You have soft complementarity where they will say things like, a lady can lead in church, um, but she's not allowed to preach or she's not allowed to teach. She's not allowed to stand at the pulpit and teach men. Then we've got egalitarian side, which is also agrees with com complementarians that men and women are equal in worth, but believe that there are no distinctions, no gender restrictions on the roles that men and women can fulfill both in the home, the church, and the society. Again, this topic when we went through this a couple of weeks ago, this is not a absolute. So you can disagree on this topic and still be a Christian and still be saved. It's not something like Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. This would fall under the circle of convictions or opinions. And again, when you discuss this in your life group this week, I know that there will be people that will have different stances on this, which is okay. And again, there are degrees, there are levels of, of those that are more extreme in it and those that are a little bit more soft in it. If you are looking to join a church and the role of woman in that church is in your top, if you take the top 10 things you're looking for in a church, and if it's in your top five, saying, I believe women are not allowed to preach or lead men, and it's in your top five things, then you probably need to find a church that is going to live out that theology. If it's in your bottom half and you don't really care, then it doesn't matter what church you're going to join. But some people feel very strongly about this and even try and make it an absolute to some of the fundamental core beliefs of Christianity. So again, there are extremes in this. And maybe you've come from a church that has been very strong. So the complementarians would say this, that um, woman, um, a, a woman cannot fulfill the role of a pastor, an elder, and you cannot teach men in the church and in society. So for example, they would say things to men, you cannot learn from a commentary that a woman has written. You cannot learn from a female blogger or from a female podcast definitely cannot be an elder, a pastor, or a teacher. And many churches will implement this from youths from, from 13 years and above, once you become a man from the age of 13. So they would say from youth, sorry ladies, you cannot teach in youth, you cannot teach the other boys, so, so too in the young adults and going forward. Some of the challenges with this is the practical implications to be a complementarian. How does this work when you are quite happy to go and learn French from a female French teacher or piano lessons from a lady, but you don't believe that a lady can teach in a life group and teach a group about what the Bible says and theology? 
You, um, a woman can teach, a woman can teach Bible and doctrine to an un- unbeliever, but not allowed to teach it to a Christian man. They even have problems with women being the boss of men, that it goes against the design that God has created. Men are called to lead, and women are called to be submissive, quiet, and follow. And how does this have implications on, for example, my family, where we've got two teenage boys? Does Malayan stop teaching our boys once they become 13, and that becomes my responsibility? So some of the outworking of it, and that's why you start getting complementarians that say they are soft complementarians because they believe a woman can lead and play certain responsibilities, but this is reserved for the men only. And on both sides, there are fears. So for example, when you say there are no roles, specific roles for the genders, then there's a fear that, oh no, but then how is it going to work in marriage and making decisions? And what about submitting to one another? Um, And what about abuse? This is just a recipe for men abusing women. So again, fears on both sides. So I wanna paint a little bit of a picture. I'm gonna do a long introduction before we actually get to this text. And to do the introduction, we gotta always go back to Genesis chapter one. That says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Ish and Isha, male and female, he created them. And then in chapter two, God placed, um, God placed the man in the garden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper or a helpmate. And again, that is not um, demeaning to woman. He describes himself, God describes himself as a helper to Israel. It's a military term. But he says, I will make a helper who is right for him. And then a little bit later, then the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out of the man's rib, out of the man's side, and made female, okay? Out of the source of man became female. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. So right in Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam being made first, and the complementarians would say first means best because he is first, he is leader. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, even today the scholars would all agree in equality in value of worth of male and female. But up until the 1960s, the belief that women were essentially inferior to men was largely um, unchallenged. For most of church history, the church has believed in the inferiority of females, the inherent inferiority of females. And if you read church fathers and theologians, they say some really hectic things about female, the woman. So God created man and woman distinct in their manhood and their womanhood. And God gave them both the mandate to rule and reign and have dominion. So they both were given that that mandate to rule and reign and have dominion over creation, to establish God's kingdom. That was the original plan. 
And then Genesis 3 happens and it all becomes a big mess. Genesis 3, we find the fall, the power struggle. And there begins the battle of the sexes. Instead of equality and working together, we now see there is a fight for supremacy. And um, yeah, there, are, there is sometimes a feeling that you get that the complementarian view is more the historical, traditional view, and the egalitarian view is more the, the liberal view. And again, there are extremes on both sides. Then if you do a study of the woman in the Bible, if you take the Old Testament and look at did God use women to lead and to teach and to play a role in the nation of Israel? I'll give you a few examples. Miriam, a worship leader and a prophetess. You got Hilda, who was also a prophetess in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Uh, Deborah, who was also a judge. The Spirit of the Lord goes upon her, and she isn't just a prophetess, but she is a judge. You can also look at Esther and other key ladies. Then in the New Testament, we find the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of God's Spirit that falls on the believers. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Paul himself is someone that encouraged and acknowledged that the woman would pray and prophesy in church. We look at the early disciples, we look at the Jewish culture and we see a, a strong patriarchal society. Um, we see Jesus had his 12 male disciples, but when you take his inner circle of disciples, the wider circle of 23 people, seven of those people are ladies. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and a whole group of ladies that were part of his core disciples, his core group, and they played an important role. When you study Jewish culture, it was so easy for a man just to divorce a woman. A lady didn't, her testimony didn't stand up in court. Um, Jewish men were obligated to pray a prayer of blessing every day. Does anyone know what the, that prayer of blessing was? Men, this is what you would say every day. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Important to study context, and it's important to study the culture of the day. Study how Jesus dealt with women. Study how Jesus related to women. It's amazing how the women were the ones that found him in that garden in his resurrection state. Look at how he dealt with the lady, the Samaritan woman. But we see when his final remarks were to these disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Teach these disciples to obey all my commandments I've given you. This is a great commission to men and women to go and play a role. In Romans, when you read about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, Paul says this, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. Um, if it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. What I find quite interesting, Paul, in this 
passage doesn't give distinctions as to what a man can do and what a woman can do. There are no gender distinctions as to what the Holy Spirit comes upon you, gives you certain gifts, graces you to do certain things, all in the advancement of God's kingdom. When you look at the New Testament, we see a woman apostle, Junior. Again, there is some debate around this apostle, Junior. So it says, Junior, my fellow Jews, they were in prison with me. They are highly respected among their apostles and become followers of Christ before I did. So whether it is saying Junior is as part of that apostolic group or Junior is known among the apostles, and Paul speaks very highly of the role that Junior plays in the early church. Again, we can look at his term fellow workers, and Priscilla and Aquila, they were house church leaders, and the Bible often mentions Priscilla first when, when, he's, when Paul is addressing both of them, just that he was a leader in that house church. Phoebe, who was called to carry the letter to the Romans and explain it, to read it and explain it to the heroes of the day. And there's many other women that we can look at that were used by God. Now, the silver bullet that the um, comp, uh, egalitarians use when it comes to this debate is found in Galatians 3, verse 27 to 28. In this new covenant, you've got the old covenant, you've got Jesus coming, pouring out his spirit, and you've got this new creation life. The egalitarians would say this, as Paul says, the apostle Paul says, and all have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So in Christ, not saying that there's no genders anymore. We've already done biblical sexuality. There is male and there is female. But in Christ, there is no longer this divide between the Gentile and the Jew. There's no longer this divide between the master and the slave, male and female. What does it mean to be in Christ, neither male nor female? Some of the difficult passages that, again, we don't have time to look properly into would be 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about headship. So Paul says, I'm so glad that you always keep I mean, in your thoughts and that you are following these teachings. I passed on to you, but there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Now, I'm not going to get into the head covering that was used to to cover the glory, the glory of your hair. And, and um, you know, we're not gonna get into the head covering, that cultural thing back in the day. But I do wanna talk about the meaning of what head is. Three options for head. Head can mean authority leadership. Head can mean physical head. And head can also mean source. So again, this is an important debate on the egalitarian side and the complementarian side. Um, where it says the, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the egalitarians would say this means source. The idea is that, that woman came from man, man was the source, 
for women, that, that um, the father sends Jesus. The danger comes is when, if you take the term um, head meaning authority or leadership, that goes into the debate of the, the Trinity. So all of a sudden you're saying that God the Father is the authority, the leader of Jesus. And that becomes hypocrisy where they are equal in the Trinity. So you have to wrestle with what does headship mean? What does it mean that the man is head over woman? And the egalitarians would say it's more than likely source and the complementarians would say leader or authority over. And again, this is where you have to settle in your heart the practical application. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34 says, women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. Um, if any have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in a church meeting. Now, Paul has just said, ladies, pray, prophesy. He's not saying um, be quiet. Now, again, a cultural thing. Ladies um, were not as educated as men. Even in the upper-class families, women were rarely educated beyond 14 years. Women could attend synagogues but not study the Torah in depth. Boys were taught to recite the Torah. Girls were not. Um, and obviously in that day and age, if you look at in the, the synagogue, there is a separation between the men and the women. And often in their meetings, the women were shouting across, asking the husband, what does this mean? And Paul is saying, rather, ladies, be quiet. When you go home, ask your husband to explain. He's not saying, ladies, you're not allowed to pray or speak in church. Okay, he's contradicting himself then. He cannot be mandating all kinds of silence. Um, but again, this is something that we need to wrestle through and talk through. What are the, the cultural things? Now, the complementarian side is this passage in 1 Timothy is their silver bullet. And now let's stop. That was a long introduction. That's a whole sermon in itself. <laughs> so now let's get into the passage in Timothy. So in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted to God, free from anger and controversy. Again, I ask you, is this descriptive or prescriptive of how men must pray in church? So in my prayer meeting this morning, I didn't see men with holy hands lifted up during the whole prayer meeting. Why, guys? Again, there is heresy and controversy and false teaching happening, and the guys are fighting lifting hands in anger, and he says, stop lifting hands in anger, lift them in adoration and praise and holiness when you pray. That one's pretty simple. Then he goes to ladies, and I want women to dress moderately. Ladies, there was this group of women, rich women in the church, that were flaunting their wealth, jewels and gold, and it was causing an issue. Now, if you came to church dressed up, ladies, like you were going to the Bridgerton Ball, glory and all, I would probably say to you, listen, there is an unhealthy fixation on your physical appearance. Really, it's not about you getting all the glory and attention, it's about him. So maybe tone it down a little bit. But this was causing issues between these wealthy women in the church and he's asking them to please 
rather let your good works bring glory to God than just showing off your jewelry and your gold. Then he says, women should learn quietly and submissively. So this word quiet, what does the word quiet mean? It normally talks about respectful attention or a quiet demeanor. Who knows when Wes preached two weeks ago in, in 1 Timothy chapter two, what was it that we need to pray? Pray for all kings so that we could live peaceful and quiet lives. Not lives where there is no talking anymore, but peaceful and quiet lives marked with godliness and dignity. And again, it's not 100% clear as to submissively, this is an idea of being a disciple of Jesus. We want you to learn quietly and submissively. This is not a verse that says, woman, you need to be submissive to all males everywhere. This is a submission to God's word and what he's saying through his word. Again, you can study this. Go and study Gnosticism in Ephesus. The Gnostics believed that it was right for Eve to take of that apple and to fall because she received this secret knowledge, this hidden knowledge. God opened her eyes and she had the secret knowledge and they were called to rule over men and dominate men. And you've got these temples just for women. Again, cultural things of the day that, that you can spend a lot of time studying over and trying to understand. So he says to these women, guys, lift hands in prayer instead of this fighting. Ladies, your dress, your attire is causing a problem. Woman, you should learn quietly and submissively. And then he says this. He has the most controversial, controversial verse in the Bible. Paul says, I do not. The apostle Paul says, I do not. Let women teach men or have authority over them. Now, there are one or two pro prohibitions here. Either teach in such a way as to have authority, or this one that says teach or have authority. Now, the, the word authority is a Greek word where we get authentain, which is a word that is not used anywhere else in the whole Bible. This is always irritating when there are these verses and you say, okay, what else does this word to orphantain mean? Let's look in the rest of the Bible to see what this means. There is no other use of this word. Then you go to Greek culture and literature and you go and try and study. And if you study 100 years before this word was used and 100 years after this word was used, you can only find five examples of it in ancient literature. A very difficult word to fully understand. And even the, even the different Bible translations have struggled to decide what it means to have authority over them. The ESV, those that love hello, is a translation that the complementarians have used. So go and look at the ESV translation and see how they've changed certain words to match the complementarian view. But the ESV says to exercise authority, um, which is, is positive, something legitimate, whereas to assume authority, the NIV, which is more of a negative action. So for example, if a teacher directs learners to a classroom, she exercises authority. If a learner tries to take over the lesson, 
And that person is a assuming authority. And the idea is this, that these women were influenced by the false teachers. They were maybe influenced by the Gnostic society and culture of the day. They were influenced by these false teachers. And they've come in and they've tried to dominate, to domineer. So for example, look at these translations. The ASV and the CEB and the NEB says to have dominion, to control to domineer or to lord it over. It's very different when you say, don't exercise authority over men versus ladies, stop trying to domineer, dominate, master, control these men. And he says, ladies, I want you to learn quietly and submissively. And, I, and he says, I don't want you to, he's quite hard in this, but to teach and have dominion the way that you are acting. So it looks like these women are usurping, usurping leadership positions in the church, and they are teaching others this bad theology. These false teachers have been kicked out of the church, but many of these ladies are still teaching uh, this false teaching. And, and why I say this is in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he addresses these same women. He says, stay away from people like that, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are less educated and trained, who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are ever showing new teachings that they are never able to understand the truth. So he seems to be challenging a situation in their church and confronting this group of ladies. So we take the view that the problem is how women were relating to and teaching the men. And there is this argument that these women had not been, um, that they had been affected by these false teachers and um, the false teachers which were no longer there but these ladies were still continuing with some of their teaching. And then he says, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan the woman was deceived and the sin was the result. So now he goes to the Genesis account and he talks about Adam being born first. And again, does being born first mean he is the authority, he is the leader, first is best? Or what is he trying to say going back to this Genesis account? In this passage, it seems like he's blaming Eve for fall. But in Romans um, 5, verse 15, he actually blames Adam. Paul blames Adam in Romans 5. Who was covenant with, which I read earlier, right in the beginning when I looked at Genesis, who was the covenant with? Adam or Eve? Eve wasn't even created yet when he gave this covenant to Adam. You will not eat of this tree. And then, he, then um, Eve is then created out of the side. So Adam is the one who breaks this covenant. And then afterwards he, he made Eve. And this is where the belief is women are inferior. They're more given to temptation. They're the weaker ones. And we cannot have women leading because they're more susceptible to sin and temptation. Which I don't think is the case. Then he goes on to say, and woman will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, in love, holiness. Here is a cloudy verse. 
So what does verse 15 mean? If sin was directly connected with the curse that we find in Genesis 3.16, and um, this is the, the curse of, of pain during childbirth. And the most natural way an ancient reader would have understood salvation in the context of childbirth would have been the safe delivery for women regularly called upon these deities, these gods of the day, to help them in childbirth. Another possibility is that these false teachers had led to a denial of maybe bearing children or sexual intimacy in marriage, and he's confronting them on some of the false teaching that is coming through. What I am sure of this is this, that you, do not, you are not saved by giving birth to children. How are you saved? Only through faith in Jesus, through his grace, you find salvation. It is not through, sorry, Toinette, you haven't had any children. Sorry, you, um, you're not saved. So where does this leave us, this cloudy and interesting passage? My challenge to you is to look at what does the whole Bible say around the role of woman? Go back to that original intent of male, female, equal in this design to rule and reign and subdue the earth. Genesis 3 and the fall of man and sin really messed things up. And ever since then, we've seen a power struggle between males and females. You've got the feminists, You've got the abuse of women. You've got a real struggle. And the church has not been exempt from this. We've seen churches split over their role, their view of what women can do and can't do in church. So where do we stand as New Creation Family Church? What is some of our theology with regard to what women can do and can't do? What do you think it is? What, what side of the line do we err on? If you've been with us long enough, you should see the role that we feel women can play today. In two weeks' time, Malayan, who's finishing her honors in theology, will be teaching, and after that, Anne Gray will be preaching, another excellent teacher. We err on the side of egalitarians. And we would adopt this sort of understanding. And again, they're things that we wrestle with. But, but we believe in male-female mutualism, which takes the theolo theological position informed by Scripture that men and women are distinct and yet equal, created to serve and partner alongside each other in all spheres of life. Each person's God-given authority, gifting, and experience can and should be recognized and celebrated regardless of their gender. You may feel different about this. You may come in two weeks' time when Malone's preaching and you may be like, oh, this doesn't sit well with me. And again, soft complementarians have different views about this because they say this. Okay, Malone can preach because she, as long as she's under the authority of her husband and as long as she's under the authority of the senior pastor, me, she can preach. 
And you kind of try and change this theological stance to make it work in practice. But we believe that women can teach. We, Kira, come and stand here quickly. Sorry. We're picking on the Gray family today. <clears throat> Anna, Alex, why don't you come stand with me? Have you turned 13 yet? Yeah. You've just turned 13. I want to say to the young ladies that we know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that He's given you gifts and talents, and you are going to play an important role in this church. And we want to see you playing an important role in this church, advancing God's kingdom. This is the message to our young ladies. We're not going to put you silently, quietly in a room where, oh, you can only teach children or ladies. We believe that God has graced you and gifted you, that in Christ is neither male nor female, that God has a purpose for you. You can go sit down. Daniel, you're not 13, you're a little bit older. <clears throat> we also believe in men. <laughs> and we believe that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that God has a specific purpose and role in advancing his kingdom through men. We need you two to play a leadership role. And unfortunately, in, in most churches, it is the ladies are the one that are doing the life of the church and you're looking for men to lead. So step up, men, and play a leadership role. We believe in you. <clears throat> so this week, you're gonna have a fun conversation in your life groups. I want you to discuss how does God see women. I want you, men, to, to talk about how you see women. In our cultural context, in your upbringing, in your home, how do you view women as inferior, weak, not equal in worth and value? Talk about it, honestly. Cultural challenges. What are some of the cultural challenges we face with the power dominance of men and women? But really getting to the heart of how does God see women? And then ladies, I want you to express how you see yourselves. Because if you've come from a complementarian church and you walk into church and there are men, guess what? You need to put that blanket, you know, you're covering Anna with those blankets. You better cover that gifting and that grace because there are other men now and you need to hide. How do you see yourselves, lady, ladies? And then wrestle this through. Has God ordered men men's and women's relationships and opportunities for service in society and in the church. Whenever we talk about these hard topics and controversial topics, I ask you to do it with grace. Remember I said this is not an absolute to your Christian faith. This is some of the outworking of, of it. It is a conviction or a strong opinion. But I wanna say this. When Milan preaches in a couple of weeks and Anne preaches in a couple of weeks, I believe that they are graced to share God's word to us. And we accept that word as though I am the one preaching that word. One amen and one oh my, oh me.
Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are building your church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Thank you, Jesus, for the bigger picture, this mandate to extend your kingdom and advance your kingdom. Thank you for those that have been called to the mission field. Thank you for those that lead in our kids' ministry and our youth ministry. Thank you for those that lead in um, social justice programs in our community. Thank you for those that lead practically in our prayer meetings and worship team that are leading life groups. Thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit. You've empowered us to advance your kingdom. That original mandate to rule and reign and advance your kingdom. And Lord, I know it's so often easy for us to get so caught up in some of the petty things and the things that we want to have endless debates about. But Lord, when I look beyond the the four walls of this auditorium, I see a community of people that are desperately in need of you, that you've called us to love you and love our neighbor. And I pray, God, that you use us, that you take the gifts and talents you, you have given us and use it to advance your kingdom. I pray, God, for this church specifically, that you would continue to grace us by your gifts, the gifts that you've given us, Lord, that we wouldn't hide them or subdue them, but that we would use them to advance your kingdom. Thank you, God, for male, female, our distinct roles and our distinct purposes. And Lord, as husbands and wives work this thing out, what it means to mutually submit to one another, to love the man, to love the woman, the way Christ loves the church and the woman to submit to the man, this mutual submission, God, I pray just in practice of how we live this out in home, in our marriage, in church life, and in society. I pray, God, for many people that would come to you because of these active hands and fingers and mouthpieces and ears, this body that is used by you to advance your kingdom. So, yeah, Lord, help us to work through some of these passages and what it means in practice. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.